Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the intelligence failures and recriminations soon to emerge once the Israeli military operation against Hamas is over, assuming the war does not widen. Joining us is Paul Piller, who served for 30 years as an analyst at the CIA, in which his last position was National Intelligence Officer for the Near East and South Asia. Previously, he served as the Chief of Analytics Units at the CIA, covering portions of the Near East, the Persian Gulf and South Asia, and also Head of the Assessments and Information Group of the Director of Central Intelligence's Counterterrorism Center. Paul Piller is currently a professor of security studies at Georgetown University and a member of the Center for Peace and Security Studies, and he has a forthcoming article at the National Interest out tomorrow about the Hamas attack and its implication for intelligence failures. Then we will speak with Andy Kroll, a reporter for ProPublica covering voting elections and other democracy issues. He was previously the Washington Bureau Chief for Rolling Stone, and he's reporting there about a series of cyber attacks on congressional campaigns helped lead to the indictment of a California political operative. Before that, he was a senior reporter at Mother Jones, where his work on self-dealing during the Trump presidency sparked multiple congressional investigations. He's the author of A Death on W Street, The Murder of Seth Rich and the Age of Conspiracy, and we will discuss his report at ProPublica, We Don't Talk About Leonard, the man behind the right Supreme Court supermajority, and how a religious fanatic who believes Catholics are under threat from, quote, vile and immoral current-day barbarians, secularists and bigots, he calls the progressive Ku Klux Klan, describes his opponents as, quote, not just uninformed or unchurched. They are often deeply wounded people whom the devil can easily take advantage of. Then finally, with the House in recess, without voting for a new speaker following a closed-door ballot that had Steve Scalise at 113 votes to Jim Jordan's 99 We'll look into the rocky path ahead, as many Republican members want to vote for the recently ousted Kevin McCarthy, thus throwing the election into chaos. Joining us is Paul Light, who is the Paulette Goddard Professor of Public Service at New York University and the founding principal investigator of the Global Center for Public Service. Previously, he served as the founding director of the Center for Public Service and director of the Governmental Studies Program at the Brookings Institution. He's the author of Thickening Government, The Tides of Reform, Government by Investigation, Presidents, Congress and the Search for Answers, 1945 to 2012. And his latest book is The Government Industrial Complex, Tracking the True Size of Government. And before we begin, I'd like to thank our sustaining listeners whose tax-deductible monthly donations, large and small, at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or at our foundation, publictruthmedia.org, enable us to provide a daily briefing on the major stories in the news, free from commercials, corporate underwriting, paywalls, and constant fundraising. As Trump and his MAGA followers weaponize lies in their war against truth itself, we're in a fight between crazy America and normal America. In order to overcome deliberate distraction and distortion, Background Briefing seeks out facts and information to awaken the silent majority in the hope of restoring a reality-based community before fascism trumps democracy and facts become completely irrelevant. And joining us now is Paul Piller, who served for 30 years as an analyst at the CIA, in which his last position was National Intelligence Officer for the Near East and South Asia. 
Previously, he served as Chief of Analytics Units at the CIA, covering portions of the Near East, the Persian Gulf and South Asia, and also headed the Assessments and Information Group of the Director of Central Intelligence's Counterterrorism Center. Paul Pillar is currently a Professor of Security Studies at Georgetown University and a member of the Center for Peace and Security Studies, and he has a forthcoming article at the National Interest out tomorrow about the Hamas attacks and its implications for intelligence failures. Welcome to Background Briefing, Paul Pillar. Thank you, Ian. Good to be with you. Well, thanks for joining us, Paul. And we're learning from the Associated Press, who uh, interviewed an Egyptian intelligence official that had warned the Netanyahu government. His warning was about, quote, something big before the Hamas attacks, quote, we have warned them an explosion of the situation is coming, and very soon. Now, of course, Prime Minister Netanyahu is saying this is fake news, but there are other reports that indicate uh, some of the failures which we can talk about. But let's begin with the Egyptian intelligence officer. Do you think that warning was issued, or did it get to the right people? I guess we don't know, but what's your hunch? Well, of course we don't know. I mean, on the level of hunches... The Egyptians could be expected to have pretty good sources in the Gaza Strip and, and with Hamas, at least as, as good as the Israelis do. Uh, so it's it's not implausible that perhaps the Egyptian services picked up something, but you know that something could be you know no more specific than the, you know the way you phrased it from the report. You know something big happening, uh, which isn't always um, the most useful policy. Uh, prescriptive sort of uh, judgment for a service to come up with. So uh, it's, it's plausible there was some sort of communication from the Egyptians to the Israelis, but um, you know, as to how specific or whether there was anything at all, we, we simply don't know. And the Wall Street Journal is reporting that Netanyahu ordered the removal of forces from the Gaza border into the West Bank to support the settlers who are running roughshod over the Palestinians. What do you make of those reports? Well, uh, it's no no surprise that uh, much of the focus, uh, especially given the issues that have been debated inside Israel, uh, that have to do with the, uh, the the future of the West Bank and uh, possibilities of annexation of that territory, all those sorts of issues uh, that involve some of the preferences in the right wing coalition of the current Israeli government. Uh, that that has been uh, the security focus. Uh, now, one of the things this illustrates in is um, how you know the, the the firmest sort of judgment one could have made in advance about prospective Palestinian violence against Israel was that yes, there is substantial resentment and anger on the Palestinian side that has in the past taken many different forms, violent forms. Uh, it will continue to take violent forms, but exactly what form that would be uh, is the sort of thing about which not only we, but often governments don't have specific information. Uh, before the events of last Saturday, many informed observers of the situation on the West Bank and East Jerusalem uh, saw, and I still see, uh, substantial uh, danger of a new intifada, a popular uprising of which, as you know, we've had a couple in in, in the past decades, uh, still stemming from uh, all of the resentments and angers that have to do with with the occupation. Uh, so 
in, in one sense, it's not implausible for Israeli security officials to be directing their, their attention there. Um, uh, but and, and I, I dare say if if the violence that had broken out last Saturday was not a Hamas attack in the south, but rather a new intifada in the West Bank, you'd probably hear some second guessing about uh, how the Israelis hadn't deployed enough of the IDF, Israeli Defense Forces uh, resources in the West Bank rather than in the south of Israel. Right. But I think it's fair to say that Netanyahu is certainly not focusing on why a new intifada might break out at any moment because of the frustration and humiliation that the Palestinians feel with, uh, you know, out any leadership, uh, which the Israelis and particularly Netanyahu has gone to pit the West Bank against Hamas and basically um, ignore the plight of the Palestinians. That never comes up in, at least in his calculations. And you, you would think that the intelligence people would at least be aware that this is a ticking time bomb. Well, there is no doubt a lot of motivated thinking of wishes uh, shaping perceptions on the part of the Israeli leadership, including Mr. Netanyahu. Um, there has been a strong desire to believe on their part that the measures they've taken to, and you know, the term the previous Israeli government used to use was to shrink the Palestinian-Israeli conflict uh, and to keep it under control. And the various devices that have been used, uh, most recently, by the way, referring to the Gaza Strip, was some modest relaxation of the border controls, which permitted uh, a few more of Palestinians who reside in Gaza to come in daily to, to work on jobs in Israel. And then, of course, there's the whole diplomatic uh, offensive going back uh, to the years of the Trump administration, the so-called Abraham Accords, and all the tremendous emphasis that the Israeli and now the current U.S. administration have been placing on try to, trying to get uh, normalization with Saudi Arabia. This has all been part of the Israeli effort to basically sideline the Palestinian issue. And so a belief is easy to, to, to generate from that kind of wish that, yes, we have it under control. We, we're going to see more Palestinian violence, but uh, not, a, not to the scale that we saw last Saturday. Um, so regardless of what you know, the Mossad or other uh, Israeli intelligence services may have told Netanyahu and, and the politicians, I think there was a very strong desire on the part of the leadership to believe that they could continue their current policy course, including everything involving the occupation of Palestinian territories, and have no more than a lower level of uh, of Palestinian violence. Um, and they could continue, in Mr. Netanyahu's words, to live by the sword forever. Uh, but they didn't expect something as big as last Saturday. But one of the members of Netanyahu's current far-right-wing coalition, Itamar Ben-Gvir, he is a, in charge of national security. But he doesn't get briefings because... The Mossad and the Shin Bet won't brief him because the guy is such a crazy right winger that he wasn't even accepted in the in the IDF as a recruit. So, isn't there a problem here? Is is there a, a disconnect between Netanyahu's office and the intelligence services? Because a lot of members of both the intelligence services and also the military itself have been demonstrating with the massive amount of the Israeli public 
against uh, Netanyahu's power grab to take over the Supreme Court? Oh, oh, there's a big disconnect, and it's simply one more example of politics uh, taking precedence over a dispassionate uh, view toward national security. And let me say, um, you know, the the Mossad and the Israeli uh, defense uh, forces, uh, intelligence, uh, military intelligence apparatus, as well as Shin Bet, include a lot of very dedicated professionals who consider themselves not political, who are dedicating their lives to the security of the state of Israel. But in Israel, as has been the case in other countries, sometimes, including the United States, um, uh, political agendas uh, can take preference. And in the case of Mr. Netanyahu, um, it is one of you know the only way he was able to cobble together a coalition that would make him prime minister was to rely on these extreme right-wing elements, uh, such as uh, Ben Gavir's party and Smotrich's party, the two most prominent uh, extreme right-wingers who were in the cabinet. Uh, and yes, it, it hardly makes any sense to have someone who uh, wasn't even considered a good enough security risk to be admitted uh, as a recruit into uh, the Israeli army to now be in charge of, uh, of uh, national security. Um, it, it's, uh, I mean, the one, the one other thing we would add, Ian, is uh, it's not just the political agenda, but in Netanyahu's case, of course, he has the corruption charges against him. And he has that very strong desire to stay in power and stay in office as the best way to stay, basically stay ahead of the law as far as that corruption case is concerned. So, Paul, just going back to the early on Saturday morning, what we've learned is that just before Hamas poured over the border at dawn on Saturday, Israeli intelligence apparently picked up a surge in activity from some of their networks monitoring Gaza and they realized that something unusual was happening, and they sent out an alert to Israeli soldiers guarding the border. But it looks as if Hamas got the jump on the border, particularly by destroying military cell towers, etc. And they used uh, drones to destroy these watchtowers that Israel had built that have remote-controlled machine guns uh, that would otherwise have stopped this surge across the border. So it seems as if Hamas was pretty sophisticated in its attack and that Israel was caught napping. So what do you think happened to the to the warning that came out, to, that was sent to the Gaza border? Well, I, I think it, it gets back to what I was talking about before in terms of what the political leadership would like to believe. You know, there's always going to be a lot of uh, a high noise to signal ratio. There will always be other ways to interpret uh, the kinds of reports that you mentioned and other reports coming from the field. And so um, in the absence of someone like the chief of Mossad saying, Mr. Prime Minister, I absolutely guarantee that Hamas is going to be charging over en masse, uh, you know, tomorrow morning at 6 a.m. And I doubt very much that any chief of Mossad could or would have said that. Uh, then there's plenty of room for interpretation uh, by the political leadership in, in the way they would like to interpret it. And this also gets into uh, what you mentioned earlier, you know, the earlier deployment of IDF forces, which meant even if those uh, all those you know, warnings such as they were were heeded, the, the question was, you know, how many uh, how many troops on the ground did the IDF have in those areas in the south to immediately confront uh, confront the invasion? And everything I've read indicated, you know, it wasn't till 
many hours later that uh, really the the IDF forces uh, uh, came to the area in force to to back up these these local militias uh, around the towns and the uh, kibbutzim that were most heavily affected who were doing their best to defend themselves but were simply un, un, outmanned and outgunned by the Hamas forces. Well, there are 1,500 Hamas fighters. They surged over the border in 30 places along the border, and some of them came in on hang gliders uh, that flew over the barricades, and the bulldozers smashed through the barricades. And these fighters reached at least four Israeli military bases without being intercepted. And according to some of these after-action reports that we're hearing, that they actually killed, they shot a bunch of Israeli soldiers sleeping in their dorms, some of them still, you know, in their underpants. Well, it's, you know, there's going to be the ultimate, the inevitable, you know, after the fact inquiry when all the dust is settled. And, um, uh, you know, that will be a a political exercise as these sorts of uh, inquiries often are. So we aren't necessarily going to get the uh, you know the most objective version of exactly you know, what happened and who did what. Uh, but if I were to try to sum things up uh, based on what we know now, I, I would I would say it is mainly a matter of political agendas, distractions, both in terms of what was going on you know inside the Israeli government, inside the Knesset, but also concerns about what the government was trying to do in the West Bank. And uh, when you have anything less than a absolutely conclusive smoking gun type warning, uh, there is plenty of leeway left for political leaders uh, not to change their current course and and not to respond in a way that in retrospect they clearly should have to to meet an attack of this nature. So just in the last couple of minutes then, Paul, there's a lot of talk now about this is uh, Israel's 9-11. Do you think, though, that given that 9-11 was an intelligence failure with the famous or the infamous report, uh, bin Laden determined to strike inside the U.S. somehow being ignored or sidelined, along with this analogy with 9-11 between Israel and the U.S.'s experience of of 9-11, Will there be an equal focus on the intelligence failure? Obviously, it's not going to happen while they're at war, but sooner or later, they will come up, surely. Oh, of course they will. I mean, that, that doesn't uh, prevent, you know, lots of recriminations involving Netanyahu and the political leadership. But there's no question that the, uh, you know, the screams of intelligence failure are going to continue for a long time. And whatever inquiry or commission, you know, is eventually convened in Israel uh, is going to, uh, you know, try to come up with some sort of recommendations that the Israeli public would uh, accept as a, as a so-called fix. You know, the last time that this sort of thing, this sort of issue arose in a big way in Israel was exactly 50 years ago after the Yom Kippur War, which was, you know, the last previous time there was a big shocking surprise attack, which in that case was the Egyptian uh, attack in, in Israeli-occupied Sinai that led to the Yom Kippur War. Um, and after that, uh, you know, there was a commission of inquiry and there were uh, various recommendations made about reorganization, um, you know, the same sort of thing we've heard about uh, here in the United States. I no doubt 
we'll expect uh, to see a, uh, a repetition of that. Um, and there will be efforts by whoever is involved in such inquiries to try to satisfy the obviously very strong appetite among the Israeli public to say, ah, this was the problem, it was an intelligence failure, and this is what we're going to do to try to fix it and make sure it doesn't happen again. But just in closing, if indeed, as it appears to be, that there's a strained relationship, to put it mildly, between Netanyahu and his intelligence services, would you expect that the intelligence services uh, would certainly uh, share the blame with Netanyahu? Oh, yeah, I think so. I mean, the, there, there's going to be so much blame to go around. I, I think um, this will go down in history as, you know, as a black eye for the intelligence services, but certainly for Netanyahu. And, uh, you know, critics will, will seize on, on his preoccupations with his trying to hold his coalition together and the judicial reform and all the rest that was an, a, a huge distraction from trying to concentrate in a careful way about what sort of intelligence warnings there might have been for something like what we saw last Saturday. No, there, there's more than enough blame that will be distributed after this one. Well, Paul Pillar, I thank you so much for joining us here today. It's a pleasure, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Paul Pillar, who served for 30 years as an analyst at the CIA, in which his last position was National Intelligence Officer for the Near East and South Asia. Previously, he served as Chief of Analytics Units at the CIA, covering portions of the Near East, the Persian Gulf and South Asia, and also headed the Assessments and Information Group of the Director of Central Intelligence's Counterterrorism Center. Paul Pillar is currently a professor of security studies at Georgetown University and a member of the Center for Peace and Security Studies, and he has a forthcoming article at the National Interest out tomorrow about the Hamas attack and its implications for intelligence failures. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back talking about the man who stacked the Supreme Court and the federal judiciary who believes that Catholics are under threat from vile and immoral current-day barbarian secular bigots. He calls the progressive Ku Klux Klan. He describes his opponents as not just uninformed or unchurched. They are often deeply wounded people whom the devil can easily take advantage of. Then someone says you're in the wrong place, my friend. You'd better leave. And the only sound that's left after the ambulances go is Cinderella sweeping up on Desolation Road. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Andy Kroll, a reporter for ProPublica covering voting elections and other democracy issues. He was previously the Washington Bureau Chief for Rolling Stone, and he's reporting there about a series of cyber attacks on congressional campaigns helped lead to the indictment of a California political operative. Before that, he was a senior reporter at Mother Jones, where his work on self-dealing during the Trump presidency sparked multiple congressional investigations. He's the author of A Death on W Street, The Murder of Seth Rich and The Age of Conspiracy. And he's the co-author of a report at ProPublica, We Don't Talk About Leonard, the man behind the right's Supreme Court supermajority. Welcome to Background Briefing, Andy Kroll. Great to be back. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for joining us, Andy. And why do you think it's taken so long to 
get a real focus on Leonard Lear, who's had an outsized role. He's literally handpicked the supermajority on the Supreme Court. He's been raising tons of dark money. He's actually not only created this right-wing Supreme Court, but he's also uh, stacked the federal judiciary with like-minded ultra-conservative judges, and we've seen some of their outrageous rulings. You know, I've been following this guy for about 10 years, but I've always been surprised that he's been under the radar until now, and your article really exposes <laughs> exposes him. So why has it taken so long? Well, I think in part it's taken so long because Leonard Leo has intentionally tried to operate under the radar. It is no accident that he has avoided huge amounts of scrutiny for as long as he has. Um, you know, there's a, this is a, just, just a little detail, but he, um, you know, he has, he had a little plaque on his desk that was uh, a replica of a plaque Ronald Reagan had on his desk in the Oval Office. And it basically said something to the effects of, you know, there's no limit to the uh, the influence or the impact someone can have if he is fine with not getting any credit, if he is fine with not seeing his or her name in the headlines. Leo had this on his desk for a long time, and it, and it I always thought it was sort of a revealing detail about him. He was more than content to not appear, you know, in the center of the photo, so to speak, but to appear on the margins. He was more than content to not be focused on in the media, to not sit for interviews, to not draw attention to the things that he was doing. And, you know, I think the reason, one of the reasons that we're, we're looking at him now is he's just become too big to ignore. He's become too big to not cast a light on because of everything that he's accomplished up to now, but also what he plans to do in the future, because his work is far from over. No, he's got $1.6 billion to play with. But is there a connection then? It's often been uh, reported that he's a member of Opus Dei, which is an ultra-conservative Catholic sector, I guess. I can't quite know how to describe it, but its membership is secret. But it's very secretive, and it have a lot of prominent people have belonged to it over the years, like Louis Free, the former mm-hmm. head of the, the FBI, and the master spy who was the most damaging probably ever to American intelligence, the FBI agent. Mm-hmm. Um, Hanson was also a member of Opus Dei. Is that a factor? Do you think the secrecy is sort of connected to this sort of secret Catholic cult? You know, I think that there is probably a kind of i don't know i don't know if it's a if it's a sort of a strategic connection or if it's a just sort of way of moving through the world that might bridge his more you know sort of political or his legal strategies with the kind of faith that also guides him and and i, I want to be clear too you know we asked him point blank if he was a member of Opus Dei, and he told us that he was not, but he did say, quote, I love the apostolate, speaking of Opus Dei, 
and its work. And he is very closely associated with he is more than just a fan of Opus Dei. He is a, a major financial supporter of something called the Catholic Information Center, which is an Opus Dei affiliated outpost in downtown Washington, D.C. for sort of proselytizing and um, uh, uh, you know, bringing in influential Catholic thinkers. It's really a kind of a, a nexus of of politics and policy in conservative Catholicism, which is also, you know, just a, a great embodiment of Leonard Leo and, and the things that he stands for. So I think to understand him, to get to your original question here, to understand him, how he operates, how he thinks, what his objectives are, you absolutely have to consider not just political influences or legal influences like Robert Bork or Antonin Scalia or, or Clarence Thomas on Leo, but also his faith. And it is a deeply um, devout, conservative Catholic faith that, you know, is a big part of who he is. And, and you would you, you can't ignore that when you're trying to understand who Leo is, why he does what he does, what drives him, what motivates him. And Andy Kroll, you're a reporter, ProPublica. We don't talk about Leonard, the man behind the right Supreme Court majority. Uh, the article talks about how, let me just quote from it, how Leonard Leo has become grown more extreme. Late last year, he accepted an award from the Catholic Information Center that you just mentioned, previously given out to Scalia and Princeton scholar Robert George. Rather than strike a celebratory tone, Leo reminded his audience of Catholicism's darkest days in history, starting with the siege of Vienna by the Ottomans in the 17th century. Today, he continued, Catholicism remains under threat from what Leo called vile and immoral current-day barbarians, secularists and bigots, who he called the progressive Ku Klux Klan. These opponents, he said, are not just uninformed or unchurched. They are often deeply wounded people whom the devil can easily take advantage of. And after the Dobbs decision, he said these barbarians were conducting a coordinated and large-scale campaign to drive us from the communities they want to dominate. Now, that is pretty extreme language. I don't know that it's much different from the kind of tortured piety of the, the supreme leader in Iran or Hezbollah or even Hamas, which of course is in the news now, these people that associate with uh, God and uh, fighting the devil. I mean, I find it deeply troubling. How, how does it strike you? Well, it really struck me when I first listened to this speech that Leonard Leo gave. This was in October of 2022 when he was receiving an award from the Catholic Information Center. Yeah, I mean, it, it was really striking to me because basically all of the years, all the decades up to that point, you know, Leo was giving speeches. He was introducing guests at federal society events. He was moderating panels with Supreme Court justices and other major figures in the conservative legal movement. But, you know, he was a pretty um, subdued presence. He was not hyperbolic. He was not extreme. He never trafficked in the kind of language, the, you know, this really severe kind of language, this, this, this sort of dark ag aggrievement that characterizes this, this speech he gave last year until last year. 
it really seemed like a, a turning point for uh, for him in the larger arc of his career. And and so we spent some time on it in the piece, you know, and I think the 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 where we came down on this or, or what it what it what it means to us, the, the larger import, I think, is. The 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 religious right notched one of the biggest victories, you know, in the last century with the overturning of Roe v. Wade last summer. And that's something we obviously write about in this piece, something that Leonard Leo was instrumental in bringing to fruition. And after this decision in Dobbs, this this case Dobbs had overturned Roe v. Wade, you know, you would think that the religious right would have a moment of celebration, a moment of um, you know, just just taking in this huge victory that they'd worked for so long to achieve. But instead, what you really found was almost a doubling down on a sense of uh, defensiveness, of aggrievement, you know, a, a real belief that even though they were succeeding in the courts, even though they had six conservative justices on the Supreme Court, five of whom are Catholic, that actually they were more besieged than ever. That they were more, um, you know, under threat than ever. They were more, uh, you know, uh, uh, with their back against the wall than ever before, which I just found to be so striking, uh, given, again, how successful they had been up to that point. And I think it's a real window into where the you know, conservative Catholic movement, the religious right is headed right now, despite, you know, having the Supreme Court, despite you know, taking down Roe v. Wade, uh, eroding the barrier between church and state, you know, all of these kinds of victories that they're putting together, they are more uh, sort of agitated or more um, animated about the threats they face than ever before. And there's just a really interesting tension there that I think comes out so viscerally in this speech that Leo gave. But it's so obvious that one man should not have had the influence that he's had to be able to stack the Supreme Court with a supermajority of like-minded jurists along with much of the federal judiciary and to do it all in secret with dark money from billionaires. Uh, it's just extraordinary that he's gotten this far and there's very little diversity on the Supreme Court. It's largely dominated by conservative Catholics who, uh, if you talk about Opus Day, are only a thin sliver of American Catholicism. So they're a minority within a minority, but they have a vast majority on the Supreme Court. So that's in itself incredibly troubling. But when you ask him whether or not he is a theocrat, which he appears to be, he says, no, it's just natural law. Mm. So what, what does he mean by that? Well, as best as we can tell, these references to natural law and the natural order of things uh, are Leo's way of sort of using what seems like a more neutral, less threatening um, description of, you know, what I really think is a, a, a vision, an ordering of society that is rooted in you know a christian tradition is rooted in much more of a biblical vision for how 
our society should look and should work. And, you know, in that larger vision, um, you know, I don't think that there's room for same-sex marriage or room for uh, transgender rights, room for, you know, some of the social advances of social advances, social progress, if you will, of the last, you know, 50, 10 or 15 years. You know, I, I mean, I don't know if birth control is included in that vision. You know, it, it, it's it's uh, he, he used a word is another word in a statement that he gave us. Leo did in a previous story, he used this word disordered. And he was referring to I think he was like referring to liberal donors and, and their priorities and disordered priorities or something. And, um, you know, I went I went sort of searching around. Where does this term disordered come from? And it actually comes from the Catholic catechism. You know, and it refers to um, you know, lifestyles, life choices that the Catholic Church views as immoral and wrong. And, you know, same sex marriage is one of those. I'm sure transgender or uh, gender non-binary um, identities are are in that category as well. So, you know, it's this language we tried to unpack it as we could, but it is language that speaks to um, a view of how society should function that is very much influenced by, uh, by, by scripture, by the Bible, by the, by a conservative Catholic worldview. Did anybody ask him whether buggering altar boys uh, is a disorder? I don't think he would argue with that point. Um, be just because that is such a, uh, morally appalling, horrible thing. I, I, I don't think you would, even, even with Leonard Leo, I do not think you would find him disagreeing with you on that point, but it is also not something that you will find him proactively bringing up when these conversations arise, at least not the conversations that I've seen him having. So has he become more extreme because, uh, he's been outed and he's bought this mansion in Maine and the neighborhood uh, and the neighbors been demonstrating against him. And does he consider his neighbors to be vile and immoral, current-day barbarians, secularists and bigots, the progressive Ku Klux Klan, who are just uninformed and unchurched, and who are deeply wounded people whom the devil can easily take advantage of? He definitely has problems with some of his neighbors. <laughs> there is no doubt about it. I mean, he sent us uh, a statement, actually, that we're going to use in our, our podcast, which I would actually take this moment to put a plug in. We have a, an audio podcast that is a, 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 its own sort of version of this same story, all about Leonard Leo, also called We Don't Talk About Leonard. But you know, in that podcast, in, in, in the final episode, which airs on Friday, we, we talk about this this tension between Leo and his some of his neighbors in Maine, his more progressive neighbors who are not happy with his his work, his influence and his presence in their little town of Northeast Harbor, Maine. And you know, he said to us uh, that that he described some of the statements that had been chalked onto the street, written in chalk on the street outside his house as hateful, vulgar and defensive statements. So, um, you know, I. I don't know if he would go so far as to describe those people that way. Um, you know, he, again, he's he's still someone who is largely careful with the words that he uses, especially in public. But, you know, he's talking about hateful, vulgar, offensive statements 
So uh, I think that he does feel some, uh, certainly some tension with his neighbors up there in Maine. And his neighbors do not shy away from voicing their unfiltered views about him as well. And there's a, there's a, there's a small but hearty faction up there in Maine that, you know, I think want him out and wish that he had never moved to their town and would like him to leave their town, which I don't think is going to happen. But it it is this sort of micro drama in the town of Northeast Harbor, Maine, that I think is is also a sort of window into a larger a larger conflict between Leo and his allies and then a sort of counter mobilization or a backlash um, by, you know, I think a, a large number of people to Leo's efforts and his influence. Well, obviously, these backroom boys have been forced out into the daylight, right? And, and he's not comfortable with that. Yeah, I mean, it, it has definitely been the case in the last year that Leo has become much more public, intentionally or not, willingly or not, um, given that, you know, just alone that he got this $1.6 billion donation from a Chicago businessman named Barry Side. We, we cover this in our, in our piece and in the podcast as well. You know, at that point, it's, there, there's no hiding. There's no, there's no way to pretend that, you know, you're just some guy hanging around the margins. You know, he's now, you know, up there with the Koch brothers and he's up there with, you know, big donors on the liberal side too, George Soros and those types. You know, he is, he is punching at their weight now because he has this huge war chest of money at his disposal. He had a lot of money before. Don't don't make any mistake there, but he also had to work hard to raise that money. Now he's got as much money as he'll ever need. I mean, he could probably just spend the, you know, the 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 investment returns from his 1.6 billion and never touch the principal and have enough money to do everything he wants and more for the next 20 years. Which is to turn the country to the far right. So Andy Kroll, I thank you for your journalism here, and I thank you for joining us. It's always a pleasure. Thanks for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Andy Kroll, who's a reporter for ProPublica, covering voting, elections, and democracy issues. He was previously the Washington Bureau Chief for Rolling Stone, and he's reporting there about a series of cyber attacks on congressional campaigns helped lead to the indictment of a California political operative. And before that, he was a senior reporter at Mother Jones, where his work on self-dealing during the Trump presidency sparked multiple congressional investigations. And he's the author of A Death on W Street, The Murder of Seth Rich, and The Age of conspiracy and he's the co-author of a report at ProPublica we don't talk about Leonard the man behind the rights Supreme Court supermajority. We're going to take a brief station break back looking into how the election for a new speaker is now in chaos since many Republican members want to vote for the recently ousted Kevin McCarthy. This is the Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. 
And joining us now is Paul Light, who is the Paul Light Goddard Professor of Public Service at New York University and the founding principal investigator of the Global Center for Public Service. Previously, he served as the founding director of the Center for Public Service and the director of the Governmental Studies Program at the Brookings Institution. He's the author of Thickening Government, The Tides of Reform, Government by Investigation, Presidents, Congress and the Search for Answers, 1945 to 2012. And his latest book is The Government Industrial Complex, Tracking the True Size of Government. Welcome to Background Briefing, Paul Light. Delighted to be with you again. Well, thanks for joining us, Paul. And we did not get a, a new Speaker of the House today. They had a close... No, we did not. They had a closed-door meeting at which Steve Scalise got 113 votes and Jim Jordan got 99. And then it turned into a peculiar standoff after that because a number of supporters of McCarthy, who was the ousted speaker, they're not entirely behind Scalise and they could, in effect, will block the necessary votes to get to 217. So what is that all about, do you know? Well, it's about the uh, lack of comity uh, within the chamber. Um, It's a difficult institution to begin with, where individual uh, constituencies uh, often uh, contribute to stalemates of one kind or another. So you're, just, you're seeing the House um, and the Congress in whole uh, at its true functioning capacity, which is not great. Uh, this is a body, a chamber, that uh, uh, an institution that is designed uh, to not work very well. Um, there are lots of places that can go wrong, and stalemate is inevitable, and you're seeing that. And people are scratching their heads saying, well, don't they want to get anything done? Uh, What's the matter with this institution? The answer is it was designed uh, for difficult decisions and often produced this kind of stalemate craziness. Uh, That's how I'd explain it. Right, but it's never been this crazy, has it? This is a new phenomenon, isn't it, that seems to have arrived with the king of chaos, Donald Trump. Well, uh, Trump's own arrival is, uh, you know, uh, his role in all of this uh, is apropos of somebody who is a, not a change maker, but a chaos maker. Um, I don't think uh, Trump or Trumpism is the explanation here. I think that this institution is fine tuned uh, for uh, controversy and uh, disagreement. If Trump could Trump have made a difference here? I, I haven't seen it, Ian. I mean, you would have a better feel of it. I, I have not seen in the papers any kind of glad handing by Trump. Although, anything that uh, we can see institutions other than the presidency uh, is delightful to Trump. I mean, he doesn't want government to work effectively. He wants to be his. Institution, uh, uh, and he is not interested in a working Congress. I, I never saw it. Did you? I mean, no. Well, like... but he he has backed uh, Jim Jordan. Yep. And Jim Jordan got fewer votes, ninety nine, 
in the behind the closed doors meeting they had earlier today, whereas Steve Scalise got 113 to Jim Jordan's 99 votes. But there's this group of McCarthy allies that are firmly behind him, and they're against Scalise because McCarthy and Scalise don't exactly get along and don't trust each other. And then you've got this other faction in the House that are angry at the hardliners who overrule the majority to oust McCarthy in the first place. So there's a lot of division there. Well, and and it's perfectly familiar uh, to some extent, uh, to some extent, given uh, what's at stake. So governing is difficult, and I'm not saying that I'm, you know, unimpressed by this. This I will... I would say that this is one of the most significant breakdowns I've seen in Congress uh, dating back to uh, World War II and into the uh, Eisenhower period. But um, it's not exactly a shocker that the House um, and that the Congress uh, more generally can't make decisions. I mean, it's meant to fail, and it's going to take some time to unravel this. I'm looking at it, trying to figure it out, and I'm waiting for you to tell me what the heck is going on. (laughs) Well, (laughs) somehow our wires are crossed, and and I thought you'd do my job for me, but you want me to do it. Yeah, you know, well, here, you know, um, know, it's that old uh, movie line, I'm shocked, I'm shocked that the house would collapse. How could that happen? Well, it's got that in its veins. And we look at it and we say, this is pretty bad. Um, I will say that I've seen some, uh, some pretty bizarre behavior uh, coming out of Congress and the House in particular. Um, I, and they, they don't have guns, I'm hoping. Uh, but, um, you know... This is the nature of the House, and they seem to be have, have set it up for this particular period to have a watershed moment to show us just how bad the House can be. Uh, where that takes us, I don't know. But there's also talk of, oh, we really need to get a speaker. We need to have a functioning House of Representatives because the government can't act to help Israel in its moment of need. So you keep hearing this from the House. So... You know, they're obviously sober voices, but there's just enough crazy people there to keep throwing a spanner in the works. Is that, I mean, that seems to be I the love case. The, I love that word, spanner. Um, but they, I, I would respond to that saying, they have spanners, too many of them, perhaps. And uh, I, I look at this and, uh, you know, uh, I read this earlier, uh, and I was like, here we go again. Uh, this is very familiar behavior, and one of the things that make it makes it particularly problematic is that this is a really important period for Congress to get its act together, for the House to do its job. I mean, you can't, uh, you can't open or you can't turn on the television without seeing something that should just frighten you. And, you know, you should be able to sign relief and say, well, at least our institutions are working. I mean, the world is coming apart. People are being killed. Uh, There's instability in the economy. At what point 
will this particular chaos spread into the markets and so forth and so on. It's a time where there should be studious uh, seriousness. And we're not seeing it. That's what you're saying, and that's what I'm saying. And I don't know what's over these folks up. I just don't know whether, you know, later tonight they might say, come on, we got to do this thing. I, I, I just don't know what will happen. Well, they're, it, they're not going to come back tonight. They're recessed yeah. until tomorrow. But surely this has a lot to do with the fact that you have a new ideology on the far right with the Freedom Caucus people that's really sort of nihilistic. They don't believe in government. I mean, Ronald Reagan said the government is the problem, but these people have taken it much, much further. So isn't that a problem? Yes. You know, one of the things I like about talking to you is, you know, you've got a good bead on this thing. Um, You know, there's enough of a government to... uh, uh, prevent a major meltdown in the economy, though this one has uh, classic uh, historical um, precedence to say, well, you know, you can get a major recession out of this kind of misbehavior. And uh, we may yet discover that the economy just ain't that strong to survive this kind of chaos. Well, we'll see tomorrow. We'll see the next uh, few days to uh, to find out whether the House can get its act together. But this is the kind of thing that has a bomb-throwing feel to it. And, you know, the House might be saying, oh, this isn't such a big deal. We need to shake things up a little bit. Um, But uh, those kinds of sentiments are often uh, rewarded with a very significant economic uh, crash. I I don't know what's happened in the markets today. Has there been any reaction to this? Not that I've detected, at least nothing dramatic, but remember they only recently dodged a bullet to get an agreement to keep the government open for 45 days, and now it's like about 40 days left uh, before they come up to another cliff. And I think that that's the problem, isn't it? That they're so disunited that uh, maybe they will, in fact, the, the economy could crash because... If they have to come to an agreement in 40 days' time, I wouldn't bet on it. I wouldn't bet on it either. I wouldn't bet on it either. This is the kind of thing where people get locked down, uh, and their arrogance and commitment to their own career prospects can lead us towards a significant collapse in governance, which you and I have been talking about. At what point uh, do we reach a... uh, significant breakdown in government functioning and that this bleeds off into the institutions of government, departments, uh, you know, program implementations. It's, it's not exactly as if the federal government right now is a paragon of virtue and effectiveness. The federal government right now is struggling with a significant increase in the number of self uh, imposed breakdowns. That's what I've been doing, Ian. In terms of my own research, I've been tracking breakdowns like this. You know, when you got the FAA and you can't get a plane into the air without being freaked out about a possible ex- uh, accident, what happens when you have other breakdowns in the federal government programs that people rely upon? Uh, whether it's access to 
drugs, uh, prescription drugs in a timely fashion, these kinds of things that we rely upon. And what I'm seeing in my own research, I've got about 200 of these examples, um, we're in trouble in terms of government performance, and this ain't going to help. You know, Americans rely on the federal government to deliver, um, you know, a great deal of promise and uh, impact, and uh, I worry about it. This is the kind of thing, you're talking about 40 days, I mean, that's more than enough to have a major uh, or that's more than enough to have a significant number of federal government breakdowns, you know, where you can't get things done. You can't collect the taxes. You can't spend out um, on uh, goods and services that the American public uh, relies on. So this is kind of a harbinger, maybe. It's, I don't know what we'd call it, but kind of a ghost um, that we have to pay attention to. Um, so, you know... I hate to go that far with it, but, um, you know, this is the kind of thing that could spread into a rather significant breakdown in the federal government's overall operation. Well, Paul Light, I thank you for joining us. I appreciate it. Goddamn good questions. <laughs> okay. Well, All I right. thank you again for joining us, Paul Light. And Paul Light is the Paulette Goddard Professor of Public Service at New York University and the founding principal investigator of the Global Center for Public Service. Previously, he served as the founding director of the Center for Public Service and director of the Governmental Studies Program at the Brookings Institution. And he's the author of Thickening Government, The Tides of Reform, Government by Investigation, Presidents, Congress, and the Search for Answers, 1945 to 2012. And his latest book is The Government Industrial Complex, Tracking the True Size of Government. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Evan Green to help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all. Please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you've missed any of today's programs or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and we encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media, and please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305.